I'll be back next week. So let's open up our Bibles. We'll read a little bit of the Word and we'll dive right in. We'll continue our study that I've started a while ago in Joseph, uh, in Genesis, excuse me, all about Joseph towards the end of Genesis. So we'll be in Genesis chapter 42, verses 25 through 38. Again, Genesis, first book in the Bible, chapter 42, verses 25 through 38. We'll read 25 through 28, and then we'll dive right in. The title for tonight's message in this study of Joseph, Shadows of Jesus, is Grace and Faith Over Fear. Verse 25 in chapter 42. Then Joseph gave a command to fill the sacks with grain. That's the sacks of, um, for his brothers to take home because they were starving because a famine had hit the land. To restore every man's money back in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them, that's his brothers, opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw the money. And there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored. And there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would teach us by your spirit, Lord. We're so thankful for the living hope that you give us through your son, Jesus. We pray that tonight you'd reveal your grace, your truth, and what it looks like to have faith in you. Help us respond, Lord, to your word tonight and change us from the inside out so that we may think, act, and live more like Jesus. Give us a deeper understanding of who you are tonight, Lord, from your word, and help us trust you more for who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Human nature, you know, is a very vicious, clawing, unforgiving thing. People, they don't forgive very easily most of the time. It could be kind of hard to have them look the other way. It's really hard to have them bless people who have wronged them. If you've been wronged in the past, you know what I'm talking about. It takes a supernatural work of God's grace in our lives to see God work in our lives for us to give grace to others. And grace is un deserved favor from God. We didn't earn it, but he gives it. There are sins and pain and crimes that people put us through. The natural reaction and desire is for justice, first and foremost, not grace, but many times our sinful nature goes far beyond justice, and we want revenge, punishment, torment, or worse for the people who've wronged us. Confucius once said, I've always waited to say that my whole life, Confucius once said, if you seek revenge, dig two graves, one for you and one for the person you're going after. That was played out, sadly, by a man named Marvin, who was from Colorado, and in 2004, he felt wronged by the whole city, by the city council and by the government officials and everyone else, and he decided to get revenge. He should have dug two graves because it didn't end well for Marvin. He was a welder by trade and he decided to make what he called the kill dozer. He took a bulldozer and he fortified it with metal, with bulletproof glass, with cameras, and with a 50 caliber machine gun. And then he went through the city and just destroyed city hall and property and everything. Sadly, it didn't end well for him. He took his own life. He should have dug two graves. But you see, Joseph is so different and so is the Lord to us. 
Aren't you glad that God doesn't take revenge on any of us, even though many of us deserve revenge or judgment? God is totally different. He blesses those who sin against him. Jesus says, God makes the rain, that's blessing, fall on the just and the unjust. Joseph finally had those rotten, no good, terrible brothers that sold him into slavery. For over 20 some odd years, he's been separated from his beloved father, his beloved brother, and everyone, and finally he has him in his grasp. He could squeeze him and crush him, but he doesn't. He does something supernatural. He lavishes them with his grace, and that's undeserved favor, through providing for all their needs and their family's needs too. Joseph had every right to send his brothers packing with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Take their sandals, take their donkeys. It's me, surprise, throws off the disguise. It's your brother, aren't you glad to see me? I didn't think so. Get lost, enjoy the walk all the way back and starve. That's what he could have done, but he doesn't. He's so like our wonderful savior. You know, Joseph exercises one of the greatest traits and character traits of God towards his brothers, and that word is beautiful. That word is grace. And grace is one of my favorite words in the whole world. It's unmerited, undeserved favor. It's God's grace. It's an aspect of God that is very unique. God's grace is never a response to your actions or my actions. Did you know that about God? He's not tallying up the good and the bad and saying, well, I'll, div- I'll deliver grace this week to you, but last week you were pretty rotten, or next week it looks pretty bad. I'm not gonna deliver any grace to you. No, God delivers his grace out of his goodness. It's an expression of who God is, not what we deserve, and I am so thankful for that. You see, God's grace is wonderful. He could give us righteousness and judgment, In fact, I don't think any one of us ever pray for that for ourselves. Do you find yourself in your prayer closet praying, Lord, just send me righteousness and judgment. Bring it all down on me, Lord. No, no. And if if Amos chapter five, verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, 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 stream. If that's your prayer or if that's your life verse, we need to talk. We need to talk afterwards, because that's rough. You need a better life first. No, we don't pray for that. We can be quick to pray righteousness and justice for our enemies, but we are always angling ourselves for God's grace. Not his righteousness, not his judgment. You and I both know that when we're face-to-face and heart-to-heart with God, we pray for his grace to take over. And much like our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, Joseph displays grace and mercy on his brother's There are three graces that he poured out towards his brothers. Look at those verses and see them. There are three wonderful expressions of grace towards those men who don't deserve anything but judgment. And think on it. Number one, what does he do? He fills their sacks with grain, stuffed full. I mean so stuffed, it's gonna explode. It's gonna pop. Kind of like Jabba the Hutt in an extra small t-shirt, okay? It's gonna pop. Now you'll never get that image out of your mind. I've ruined the rest of the sermon. You can go home now. That's what I do. Number two, Joseph's grace goes further. It goes far further. Listen. He then commands the men to return all their money, every last bit of silver back to those men who don't deserve it. He paid for the grain. He said, take the money and hide it deep in their sacks, 
Just like you'd find a prize in the cereal box when you were little. Remember Cracker Jacks? How many of you guys remember Cracker Jacks? Remember that? Oh man, they were disgusting, but I wanted the prize. So I would dig in like a, like a raccoon, and I'd dig in when I was a kid. They'd be everywhere, half the box would be ruined, and I'd just get the prize out. It was usually something worthless, like a little, you know, garbage, like, you know, I don't know, compass, or maybe it was one of those little stick-on tattoos, and you'd lick it, stick it on your forearm, and act like your grandpa from World War II. Got this in 42, you're five. War changes a man. (laughs) Bye, mom. No, who did this to the Cracker Jack box? No, but you know what? He stuffs their money deep in. And this, he he did this as well. Number three, what does he do? So he stuffs them full, absolutely packed, ready to pop. Gives them the money. Number three, what does he do? He actually provides provisions for the entire road. He's so smart and so loving and so kind and so thoughtful that he calculates how long will it take them to get there? How much grain will their donkeys eat? How much grain will, how much food will they eat? Give them extra on top of it. That's another grace. It's another undeserved favor so that they don't deplete the supplies for his nieces, his nephews, and his sister-in-laws, and his dad, and his brother. This generosity ensures them that they'll return with the maximum food for their family. You know, Jesus is gracious to everyone he comes in contact with. This passage here, whenever these three graces are given out, that he gives out more than enough, better than they deserve, it reminds me of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Do you remember what he did? He didn't didn't get mad. He didn't look around at all those frustrating people that came out, more like 10,000 because that was just the men. He didn't look out and say, what the... What in the world? What is going on here? What's going on? Why didn't these people have brains enough to bring food for the journey home? What were they thinking? Peter, go try to scrounge up enough food for these people. No, he wasn't frustrated at all. He had them all sit down, relax, hang out, and he just took out of his greatness, out of his supernatural generosity, out of his grace, it was his joy to feed each and every one of them till they're stuffed. It says that they, are, they ate till they were stuffed. I mean, Thanksgiving Coma nap stuffed. You know what I'm talking about. And you never understand it as a kid. You look over at your grandpa and you're like, why is he snoring on the couch sitting up? How can that happen? Then you hit about 23 and you eat a dinner and you stuff yourself and you're like, oh, grandpa, move over. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, because you're just stuffed. And there was actually leftovers too. So that's the amazing thing about Jesus's grace It's more than enough, it's better than we deserve, and in each one of those passages, it even says that there were leftovers too. I love Jesus because I love leftovers, and so do you, I I presume. God is gracious, and he gives us more than enough and better than we deserve. Isn't that true in your life? It's true in my life. He cares for us, and he loves to meet our needs. Please never think that God is in heaven and he's annoyed with your needs that you have. Not your wants. I need a new car, Lord. Give me that Tesla. I just need a Tesla. That's all I want. That's a want. It might be a 1984 Toyota Corolla with or without air conditioning. But you're going to get a car. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's not a word for somebody. They're like, I don't like Corollas. No. It's, but God's going to take care of your needs. He loves to provide for his children. And I think that tonight, for someone in here, someone listening, You need to know that God loves to feed his sheep. He loves to feed his children. He loves to provide a feast for his children. And he loves you tonight. And he's going to take care of you out of his grace. Not because you deserve it, because you don't. And neither do I. But out of his grace, he takes care of us. 
Jesus is merciful and gracious to us. He fills us to overflowing, not with grain, but with his Holy Spirit, that we can be overflowing with God's gracious, wonderful, beautiful Holy Spirit. He provides for all of our needs, and he doesn't allow us to pay for salvation. The brothers weren't allowed to pay for that grain. God doesn't allow us to pay for our salvation. He pays the price out of the richness of his grace, and it begs the question, have you ever thought about this passage and wondered, well, who paid for the grain? Who paid for all that grain? Who paid for all that silver? Who paid for all those provisions? Joseph did. Joseph paid for all of it. He wouldn't let him touch a thing because of how gracious and wonderful he was. But unlike Joseph, who paid with money, Jesus takes care of all of our debts, not with money, not with silver, not with gold, not with Bitcoin, but with his own blood. He pays for our sins with his own blood, and we can't pay. Isn't that wonderful? God's taking care of everything that you need for salvation. In Revelation 1.5b, it says this, to him, that's Jesus, who loves us. Please underline that, who loves us. Revelation 1.5, and has freed us from the sins by his blood. What a great savior we have. We, like the brothers, receive God's grace and generous provisions and blessings because of who God is, not because of what we deserve. And that's such a good word. What do we deserve? Judgment, punishment, wrath, hell. But God gives us grace in that place. And what is grace? It's his unearned favor, like I've said before, but I'll say it again because it's important to know that. You can't do anything to earn it. God just gives it to you because of who he is. It's a gift. It's like salvation in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it, that salvation, is the gift. It's not a gift, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is not a gift, but the gift of God that he freely gives to each one of us, just like Joseph freely gave to his brothers. We can never purchase salvation because our money is no good to God. And speaking of money, let's look at verse 28. So he, that's one of the brothers, said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what has this God has done to us? Their hearts failed them, and if you have a pen, underline the words to us. They were afraid. Now God's again mentioned here by these men who haven't spoken about God much in over 20 years because they've been hiding from God for good reason, I'm sure. What has God done to us? This should be a moment of praise. You'd hope that they'd find the money and find the grain and the extra provisions. Did we buy this much? This is huge. Look at all this money. Look at all this stuff. Praise the Lord God took care of us. He gave us money to buy grain in the future. This is a wonderful moment. It's none of that. They start getting worried and freaking out. They have guilt and fear. They get together and freak out. They don't see God's mercy or grace. They see it as a negative situation. Now, in verses 29 through 34, I'll sum it up here quickly. They retell the story of the test that they went through and how Joseph was so mean to them and they're so innocent. Now, all the sacks are found to contain their money and the whole family is fearful. They don't praise God for his provision. And we are just like them in moments like this. If we're far from God or distant from God, we become slaves of our own imaginations and ignorance if we don't seek God in times of confusion. Verse 35, it says this. 
Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they had their father, they, they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were all afraid. Notice how fear grows here. That's an important thing to notice about the passage. Not just the brothers, but now Jacob too is afraid. Fear has an infectious way of growing. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin, my favorite son, away? All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. Put him in my hands, and I'll bring him back to you. Great idea, Reuben. That's crazy. He's sounding more like a Canaanite than a Hebrew. What it tells you is this in the passage, that these men, these brothers, these people that are living in Canaan, they're becoming infected by the culture, by the thinking, by the philosophy of all the people around them more than God. Verse 38, but Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall Benjamin along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. He's afraid because he doesn't see that God's at work. And we fear too when we don't see God at work in our lives, or worse, when we look at God as conspiring against us. Joseph's brothers don't see the money returned to them as a positive expression of God's grace to keep them alive through the entire famine. They don't. They see something suspicious because they have fear in their hearts because of what they've done in the past. They say, my money's been restored and their hearts failed them. What is this God has done to us? Not for us, but to us. Their words are very telling. They're viewing God as a God who's looking to punish them, not bless them. And if you look at God as a God who's willing and desiring to punish you, not bless you, you can see God all wrong. They see God this way because they're not in right relationship with God. They're far from God because of their unrepentant sin that they have in their lives of selling their brother into slavery and breaking their father's heart. Our sin separates us from a relationship with God, not God's love, but it separates us from closeness with God, intimacy with God, unity with God. Every blessing can become a curse whenever you're running from God. They now have a skewed perspective of God. Every bad thing that happens is a punishment from God. Every good thing that happens is a punishment from God. There's no way to win when you have unrepentant sin because it twists your view of God and your relationship with God and you're always looking over your shoulder. For Christians though, for Christians that love God, that serve God, the opposite is true. When we put our faith in Jesus, we can praise God through our trials and difficulties not worry through our trials and difficulties and bite our fingernails down to the quick through our trials and difficulties because he'll work everything out. You see, they have it all wrong and we will too if we're the kind of people who are looking what God's doing to us, not looking at what God has done for us. We look at Jesus and we see what he's done for us. What has he done for us? We don't have to ever lose heart in trials when we look and see what Jesus has done for us. What has he done for us? He's died on the cross for our sins. He washes all of our sins away. He fills us with his Holy Spirit so that we have the power to say no to sin. He even gives us eternal life and brings us into his family and we have access to Jesus 24-7 through prayer constantly. Look at what God has done for us. The list goes on and on, but there's a world of difference between a person that says, look at what God's doing to me, and then look at Jesus and say, look what he's done for me. 
And what kind of a Christian, what kind of a person are you tonight? Are you a person who's constantly looking at what God's doing to you? Look what, this ha- look what happened over here. Look what God's doing to me. I can't believe it. Or are you the kind of person that's always looking for God's grace, his goodness, and his wonder by saying, look what God's done for us. Look at his wonder. Look at his beauty. Look at his grace. It's fantastic. C.H. Spurgeon says this when it comes to trials. When God is with us, there's no difference between Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace and our cozy, comfortable, sealy-posturpedic bed. Okay, he didn't say sealy-posturpedic, but he did say the comfortable bed. There's no difference. You can be comfortable either way because you're aware of who is with you. It does not matter. And Jacob, their father, said to them, verse 36, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? Here's the main thing that you want to underline. Look at these words next. Out of the man who is governed by God, what does he say? All these things are against me. Fear has taken the place of faith in Jacob's life. Fear also compounds and grows just like a disease. They're blessed and they respond with fear. Fear means that there's no presence of faith. Do you remember when Jesus performed a miracle and he saved the lives of his disciples and all of them freaked out instead of praising him? Do you remember when that happened? It's kind of like tonight, what was going on on the Sea of Galilee? A storm. And they're freaking out before. Oh, what's happening? Don't you care about us? Jesus gets up and it says this in Mark chapter 4, verse 40. But Jesus said, after he calms the storm, why are you so faith-filled, you good, godly men. What an example you guys have set for all the Christians coming down the line. You guys are great. Way to go. Gold star. Five stars. No. What does he say? Why are you so fearful? Why are you so fearful? Why are you freaking out? How is it that you have no faith? That is so big. You see, the verse reveals something powerful. Where fear dwells, faith is absent in our lives. And anytime you're afraid, it should signal you like a bat signal. Wait a minute, I have no faith. I have no faith in this. And it should get you to think about that and to turn. Because many of us are freaking out instead of faithing out. You can't have fear and faith existing in the same heart at the same time. But what is faith? It's really abstract. If I were to go around and ask each of you, what's faith? I'd get a different answer over here and a different answer over here and a different answer over here. And they'd all be good answers, I'm sure. You're all well-taught biblical Christians. But everybody's got different views of faith. It can be abstract and ethereal, something like a fog that you're trying to grab hold of if you're trying to describe it to somebody who doesn't have a relationship with God. Is it running into the unknown and hoping for the best? Is that faith? Is it reckless? Just throw faith around anywhere? in anything or towards anyone? Is it closing our eyes and just jumping off into the possibilities of the future and the mysteries that lie ahead? Is that faith? Biblical faith is none of these things. Biblical faith is designed by God to be incredibly practical and user-friendly. It's simply trusting that God is working for his glory and your good no matter the circumstances. It's trusting that God is working for his glory and your good no matter what the circumstances, no matter what. There is no blind faith for Christians. Do you know that? Anybody who says, oh, you have blind faith, you do not have blind faith. 
That's not biblical faith. There is no blind faith. Faith sees God clearly. For the Christian who knows God's character, we don't have blind faith. Faith is relational because it takes two for faith. It takes the person who's putting their faith in God and God who responds wonderfully to that faith that you put in him. You better believe that God loves it when his kids exercise their faith and put their faith in their heavenly father. It's wonderful. Just because something's invisible doesn't mean it isn't real or true. You need to trust that God is working before you see the outcome. And when we fear, we have no faith that God's working and therefore we come to all the wrong conclusions. Look at the verses. Look, look at what Jacob says in verse 36. Look how he reacts to the circumstances because he's fearful, not faith-filled. He says, first, Joseph is no more. Eh, wrong. Joseph is alive. In fact, Joseph is more than just alive. He is the second most powerful man in the entire world at this time, and he's gonna keep you alive and your whole family alive. God's at work, but he comes to the wrong conclusion because he has no faith. He says, Simeon is no more. Eh, wrong. Do you realize what he's done here? The brothers say, we got good news and bad news, dad. We got grain, that's the good news. Bad news is Simeon is in jail, but we can get him back. He's like, tell me, I'll do anything. Tell me, we'll get Simeon back. You tell me, we'll get the guys and we'll round them up and we'll go down there and get him. All we have to do, uh-huh, is, yes, take Benjamin, I'm listening, and take Benjamin down to Egypt. We'll have the funeral on Friday. <laughs> because Simeon's gone. He's written Simeon off. He is not sending Benjamin down to Egypt. So he writes off Joseph because he's been lied to and he thinks he's dead. He writes off Simeon because he's not gonna risk Benjamin. And then what else does he say? Wrong conclusion again. Joseph will be revealed. Simeon will return, spoiler alert. And then the worst of all, he says, all these things are against me. Wrong again, Jacob. God is working all these things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You see, but we see ourselves in Jacob just a little bit here. Just a little bit. Do you see yourself in Jacob just a little bit here? Let's just be honest quietly, just between you and me. Have you ever had that moment quietly in your own heart where you're like, all these things are against me? But you'd never say it out loud because you're a Christian, so you have faith and you wouldn't do that. But you might have possibly said it out loud or at least felt that. I'm not gonna have hands raised because all of us would raise our hands. We've felt this before, haven't we? You know, I love this. I like how generic the statement is, all these things are against me, because we can connect with Jacob here. We've all had moments, and we might even be in a moment right now. All these things are against me. And God wants to get you to see things a lot differently. We can so easily forget how wonderful God is in times of trial. And in Romans 8, 28, it says this, God works together a couple of things, some things, most things. No, it says all. God works all things together for good who love God and are called according to his purpose. We get the privilege of knowing what's going on behind the scenes. We know Joseph is alive. We know he'll get Simeon back. We know all the good things God's doing. But Jacob doesn't know. But he could exercise faith, but he chooses not to. This is really a time, all these things are against me, is the exact time when faith needs to be engaged. And we need to step out in faith and trust in God. So how do we fall into fear? Well, when we look down in desperation at our circumstances and we flip out, because we're looking right down at everything, like looking in a microscope. We won't look around, we just look down at everything that's going wrong. 
That's how we freak out. We also look around in frustration and start taking it out on other people. And it's not their fault. But we do that sometimes as human beings instead of doing the best thing, and that's looking up in expectation of our great, gracious, wonderful, fantastic, powerful God to work in our lives. We find ourselves in the exact same place as Jacob. All these things are against me when we do three simple things. We don't seek God in prayer. How many know that's true when you look back and think, I was freaked out, but I didn't once seek God in prayer on that one. Two, we don't place our faith in God to work for his glory and our good. And that's a big mistake. And then finally, we focus on the fearful circumstances and not on God. That's whenever we're gonna freak out and we're gonna lose our faith. Is it a crazy idea to think that God is working in a terrible situation? Are you going through a terrible situation tonight? You could go through the five stages of acceptance, denial, this isn't happening. Anger, I can't believe this is happening, I'm angry about it. Bargaining, what can I do to get out of this? Depression, I'm so sad this is happening. And finally acceptance, oh well, we all gotta go sometime. No, you don't need to do that. How about skipping all these steps and praying and crying out in faith to God? Let God handle your trial. Skip all those steps. We, like Jacob, don't place our faith in God when fear takes over. This is what happened to the brothers. I believe that Joseph's brothers have lived in fear since the day they sold him into slavery because they know what they did was wrong and they've been afraid they're going to be found out. I believe Jacob's lived in fear since the day he lost his beloved son, Joseph, and now he's white-knuckled and held on to Benjamin as tight as he can because he's so scared of losing another son. There's two types of fear represented in this passage. The brothers are fear, fearful that God is going to show up and get them all in trouble. They keep saying, God's doing this to us. We, God's gonna get us back. God's gonna get us back. So there's two types of fear. God's gonna show up. And then Jacob's fear. What's his fear? God isn't coming. God just isn't coming. He's not showing up. It's so weird, but both of them lead different people through fear. God's gonna show up. I'm freaked out. God isn't coming. I'm freaked out. God is gonna show up, and he already has. The brothers were afraid that that sin would come forward. Jacob's afraid of losing a son. When we're ruled by fear, we become helpless like little children, stuck. And we need faith in times like that. It reminds me when I was a kid, we had a big tree in our backyard. It was a Japanese tree, it was beautiful. It was like 150 feet tall to me as a five-year-old, but it was probably more like 15 or 20 feet tall. So it was probably like 20 feet tall, maybe 22, give or take. And my brother decided, he saw me looking at that tree and he saw what I was thinking. I mean, you're a young man, you gotta, you gotta climb stuff. You gotta, you gotta find stuff to throw, at, you know, throw things at, carve on, destroy, win, demolish, and climb. So this fell into the climb category and it was time to climb. But I was five years old and I was a little chubby and I wasn't athletic. <laughs> but Robert, my brother, who was four years older, he was tall, taller than me. And he said, I see what you're thinking. And I'm like, you know what I'm thinking. He's all, you wanna climb that tree? I was like, you know it. So, cup the hands, get me up, hoist me up, I'm in it. I start climbing, I am feeling like the king of the world. I'm just like, I'm the king up in the tree. My brother, he's like, way to go. Starts walking off, goes inside. I don't notice, because I'm just having a great time up there most of the afternoon. 
but it's about dinner time, and I realize I can't get down. I'm stuck. So here I am. I start climbing. I keep figuring out. I can. I can kind of come down. Well, no, can't. No, can't do. Oh, well. And then finally, what do you do? You start freaking out, and then you do the un, the unmanly thing, where you're like, I'm a man. I climb trees. Then you're like, help, help, dad, mom, anybody. I'm not calling Robert because he'd be like, yeah, all right, you're up there all night. I'm so glad. I'm eating your brownie tonight. You're not getting it. So I start crying out. And who comes out? My dad. My dad. And he's like in his prime at the time. He's a Vietnam vet. The guy's just tough as nails, martial art master. And he just asks me one simple thing. Jump. Jump to me. Men have depended on him to save their lives with weapons and ammo and firefights. He can pop your head off and show it to you as your body drops. Ha ha, he's that tough. But what do I do? I totally embarrass the man because I start negotiating with him. Chubby five-year-old Mark Carson in the tree because I don't have faith that he's going to catch me. Are you sure? Can't you get mom? Can't you get somebody else? And he's just like, you jump. You jump now. I'm cutting that tree. And then I died. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. No, but he just started yelling and screaming and freaking out. Why? I didn't have faith. I didn't have faith in him that he could catch me. Finally, with enough yelling and threatening, I jumped, and then I was in big trouble. And then Robert was just loving it. He was laughing every minute of the way. But what happened in that situation? Same thing as you and I. Do we not have a God that's big enough and strong enough to catch us? Yes or no? And yet we embarrass him, even though he's gracious to forgive us, Heaven's watching and all of us are negotiating the whole time. I'm not jumping. I'm not doing that. I'm not. Oh, are you sure? Are you sure? Are, can you handle this? All this? All these problems? Are you sure, God? We're a little ridiculous and a little funny. A.W. Tozer wrote this. We wonder why we don't have faith. And this is important. Nobody sums it up like A.W. Tozer. Here comes the definition of faith. You want a definition? You want a handle on faith? Here it is right here. This is what you tell people. We wonder why we don't have faith. It's coming. Just wait. The answer is faith is confidence in the character of God. Faith is confidence in the character of God. Because if I had faith that he could catch me, my dad, it would have been such an honor to him to just him go, jump, and I just go, boom. Boom, out of the tree, in the arms, down, we're having dinner, we're hanging out. But what has it become? This big rigmarole and this big ridiculous moment. And you have the same opportunity to be unlike me. You have a moment. You, each one of you Christians in this room this week, you have moments and they're very few and far between, but here it is. You can exercise your faith and bring honor to God by simply trusting in the character of God, putting your confidence in the character of God. And you know what? That's so wonderful to do. This is what he says. Faith is confidence in the character of God. If we don't know what kind of God God is, we can't have faith in him. But you guys know. You already know who God is and what he's like. Faith is trusting in God's character. That's a good definition for faith. It's not blind. It's not weak. It's not jumping into nothing. He has everlasting arms that can catch you. You may not be able to see the final outcome, but God has given you an entire Bible filled with his promises. 
If you don't have faith, perhaps you need to learn some of the promises of God, Christians. Start memorizing them. And you know what happens? You start jumping out of those trees faster than a ring-tailed lemur on a banana. You start moving quick. I mean fast whenever God calls. And it's a beautiful thing to see. It certainly is encouraging to me as a Christian to see men and women of faith exercise that faith with ease and grace. That's powerful. That is powerful. It's inspiring because of how great God is. We also have not only all the promises, but we have testimonials of eyewitnesses that trusted in God. The power of faith is how user-friendly it is too. Do you know for all the young people in the room, you don't have to have a license like you do for driving. You don't have to be a certain age to vote. You can exercise your faith, all of you, in junior high and high school right now. You can exercise great, massive, biblical-style faith right now at your age and just overshadow the rest of us. And I'd encourage you to do that because that's what we need. We need more young men and young women putting their faith in the confidence of God and stepping out and doing great and marvelous things that God's called them to, knowing that God's called them to it. Put your faith in God at a young age and then keep jumping and don't stop and don't let anything stop you. Faith isn't designed to be emotional either. It's designed to be incredibly reasonable. Three quick reasons why it's reasonable to put your faith, your trust in God. This is simple. This is easy. This is practical. This is why you can have faith. Number one, God's good. God is just flat out good. And in him, it says this, we can trust in God because in him is no darkness, not one bit, not at all. First John 1, 5, God never does any evil to anyone ever. When he gives you something to do, he's not tricking you. He's not gonna make a mockery of you. He's gonna show up in a big way. God never does any evil. He's always trustworthy, he's always righteous, he's always good. Is it reasonable to expect God to work good into any situations and all situations? Yes, because, simply because he's good. That's reason number one, you can jump, you can Put your faith in God because he's good. Number two, we know that God can work in any situation because of how powerful he is. Jeremiah 32, 27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The answer is what? No, there's nothing too hard for God. It's totally reasonable to expect God to solve all, all my problems because he is infinitely stronger than anything I can face in the world physical or spiritual, visible, invisible, God's strong enough. It's totally reasonable to put your faith in God. Number three, we can know that God is wise enough and brilliant enough to be able to work every bad situation for his glory and our good. It is reasonable to assume God's brilliant enough, smart enough to solve all my problems better than I can. I know you have good ideas about how to solve your problems and fix everything in your life. Trust God. He has a much better plan for you. These three hinges, if you're thinking of faith as a door, you know how doors have hinges and they swing on them? You've got three right there, and there are literally tons. There's 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 different reasons that you can walk confidently and swing that door wide of faith every time you need to exercise your faith. You can say, I trust in the character of God. I trust in the character of God. I trust in the character of God because he's not gonna let me fall. He's not gonna make a mockery of me. 
He's going to love me and care for me and watch over me even if the circumstances are terrible, even if the outcome is terrible. It doesn't even matter because that doesn't change who he is. With this understanding of who God is, we can rest in the promise of Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Do we believe that today? Do we believe that today? Do you believe that God can work all things together for good, even the stuff that stinks, even the stuff that is heartbreaking? Faith is taking the unknown and placing it in God's hands. It's trusting in his character before he acts. That's the key to faith. It's trusting in God before he acts. Faith is designed by God to replace the poison of fear in our lives. Either a life will be ruled by fear or faith, but a life cannot be ruled by both. So you can be that Christian who's stuck in the tree negotiating with God constantly over every single ridiculous issue that you face. Or you can be a supernaturally spirit-filled Christian who isn't jumping into nothingness or being reckless, but every time God says, put your faith in me, you're the first one to jump right into his arms. And it's a beautiful thing to see. Faith is also relational. It's designed to draw you into deeper relationship and trust with God. From that point on, did I ever worry, even though I was only, it felt like I was 20 feet in the air when I jumped to my dad, but do you think I ever worried about him being strong enough to do anything for me? Not a chance. Not a chance. I trusted him no matter what. I knew he'd catch me no matter what because he already proved it. God's already proven everything. And behind faith is the question, the simple question. This is behind every faith moment in your life. God's asking, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And that's what he whispers to me whenever things are tough, whenever the trial hits, whenever the storm is raging. And I hear him quietly say, do you trust me, Mark? Do you trust me? Without faith, it's impossible to please God, it says in Hebrews 6.11. We must realize that when we place our trust in God, it blesses God and it deepens our trust in him. Jesus said this about the tribulation and the troubles we face, because you might feel like God doesn't love you if you face tribulation and difficulty, but actually, that's not true. Jesus wanted to dispel that myth and wipe it away by saying this, in the world you will have tribulation, guaranteed. You're gonna have trouble, you're gonna have heartbreak, you're gonna have bad news. Jesus also said this, though, here's the good part, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. He's good, he's wise, he's powerful, and that's where faith comes in. That's where faith comes in. That's where faith comes in. Are we walking around like an atheist? I know you're not, but do you live practically like an atheist, like God doesn't exist or doesn't care about you or worse that he's conspiring against you in the situations and trials that you find yourselves in? What do we do when faced with all these things are against me? Why don't we fear? We don't fear because of who is with us. We don't fear because of who is with us. Reminds me of a story of a young boy in 2017 named Philip. And little Phil was kind of a chubby kid. He was in fifth grade, getting ready to go to middle school. And he was very, very poor. And he had glasses. And the kids were cruel. Nobody can be crueler than a kid, man. You walk around a kid, they will find out what you're insecure about like that. And they'll make fun of you and tease you and mock you. They can be very sweet. We were all kids once. How many of you guys know that? 
Kids can be mean. They just bullied this kid and treated him like trash every day. The mom went to the administrator. Nobody would do a thing about it. Finally, they were so poor, they did a toy drive, and she connected with this guy who was part of the toy drive, and he saw them and their tough situation. He just talked to him to try to encourage this little kid who's been mocked and teased and ridiculed. He looked down, he's kind of slumped over, sad. Hey, bud, how you doing? His name was Brent Warfield. I like the name already. And Brent started asking the mom, what's going on? What's happened? Oh, it's so terrible. Nobody, nobody will do anything. Nobody will do anything? Administrator won't do anything? People are bullying that kid? I got it. Give me the address. Give me the address of the school. When does he start school? In the summer, he worked this out. He happened to be the head of the biker gang that wasn't just a biker gang. It was called the Biker Enthusiasts. And he grabbed 50 bikers to come along with little Philip the first day of sixth grade, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, and 50 bikers with their leather jackets, and they're just cruising. They walk Philip. They get him on the bike. They take him into school, and they walk him to his first class. And everybody, parting of the Red Sea, anyone? All the bullies are looking around. I don't know what's happening, but we're not going to talk to Philip anymore. Hi, Philip. You want a, you want a sandwich? You want, you want anything from the cafeteria, Philip? Good to see you. Philip, welcome to school. We're so glad. Here, do you want a lift? I mean, I'll carry you around. What do you need? Can I carry your books? Everybody flipped out because of who was with Philip. Did Philip fear anybody from that point on? Did he ever have any trouble from that point on? No, because of who was with Philip. You and I have a God that is with us. He is bigger and stronger than 50 bikers. Thank God. I don't know, they're pretty tough. No, he is, he is. He's bigger and stronger. He's much wiser. He's much more loving. You have a few short moments, dear Christians, to glory, to bring glory to God by simply trusting him before he works. God will strengthen you and help you and uphold you. We can trust that a God as powerful and wise and good as Jesus can take care of every problem we have. Isaiah 41.10 says this, fear not for I am with you. You don't have to fear because of who is with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you and I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. We must place our faith in God because he's with us. After all, Jesus' title is Emmanuel, God with us. We wait for Jesus to strengthen us and to help us in our times of need. When all these things are against me, we must exercise our faith, and that's simply trusting in the character of God. He'll do a miracle in our trials. We just need to look to him to do it. This week, as we face our trials, I don't know what you're gonna face this week, Christians. I don't know what heartbreaking things and difficult situations you're gonna find yourself in, but I will guarantee you this, you're going to find yourself there this year or next year or the decade that precedes that. It's coming for all of us. And we need to be the kind of Christians that are sober-minded and ready to put our confidence in the character of our great and good and wise and gracious and loving God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this night. We thank you for these words that you've given us, Lord. This wonderful example, Lord, from Jacob's life, whenever he failed, but we don't have to, Lord. And even if we do, Lord, you're still gracious enough to wash over all of it. Your grace is more than enough and better than we deserve. And we praise you for your love that you give us. We praise you for your kindness. We praise you for being a good God 
who does nothing but good to each and every one of us. We praise you for being a wise God who is brilliant beyond measure, who can even take the terrible circumstances of our stories, Lord, and rewrite them better than ever. And we praise you for being a strong God who can overcome any circumstance in our lives. We pray that you would help us be confident, Lord. Exercise our faith and be confident in your character and look to you, Lord, in times of trial. Help us celebrate your grace this week as we look and see your fingerprints all over our lives and help us exercise our faith and encourage other Christians to be confident in your character because you are marvelous. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer for anything afterwards, we'll be up front to pray with you.